All right, here we go. Hey, Reg, what's going on? Thumbs up? Oh, thumbs middle. Oh, you're just so-so today. Well, hey, you know, that happens to everybody. It's the, it's the dog days of winter now. We're right on the cusp of that, um, you know, winter ending, spring beginning kind of limbo area. Already had your Groundhog's Day, six more weeks of this and whatever. But here in Chicago, my goodness, we, we have nothing to complain about weather-wise. My gosh. Hardly even a winter. I don't even think we've had 20 inches of snow all year. Maybe even less than 15, which is crazy. So it hasn't even really been arctically cold. We've had a few blasts of uh, below uh, in, the, in the teens and below. And, uh, and I wasn't here for that. <laughs> so it's been a real mild winter for me. <laughs> all right. Well, try to uh, you know, fight through your, uh, your pre-spring blues there, will you? And uh, I'll give you the, uh, the three S's in the countdown. You give me the music. And uh, we'll put together a podcast regardless of your, uh, your so-so feelings today. So, you know, buckle up, okay? All right, here we go. Star, smile, strong. Uh, What's the other thing I say? Oh, the countdown. (laughs) Okay. Star, smile, strong. That's the three S's. Countdown will be three, two, one, and then I will say my spiel, and you give me the music, and then we continue. All right. Put it in the book, episode 353, 353. You ready? Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Pod Tastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Pod Tastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We're there. There we are. Oh, your old reliable friend, as usual. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, tell everybody else. Don't hog this. This is too good to not share with everyone else. So get out there. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell anybody who listens to a podcast. And it's a pretty big universe these days. Oh, you listen to this podcast or that podcast? Well, this is what I listen to. Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Tell them it's your podcast and it's your favorite podcast, and it should be theirs, too. Oh, that loyalty and devotion. If you like what you hear, not only share it, but drape yourself in it. Go to WGNRadio.com. Go to the podcast section. Hit the prompt for this podcast, and oh my gosh, you can envelop yourself. You can be draped in podcasts. Just keep scrolling down and scrolling down. Always a good idea to hear where we've been so you're up to date as to where we're going. And right now, we're going with episode 353. So here we are, the... uh, that limbo period, kind of the the, the last days of uh, of February, and uh, spring 
on its way. Depending, this has been an odd kind of uh, weather year. Weather was much more predictable according to the months. It's 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 all out of whack now. We we one season seems to blend into the other, and some get almost bypassed. So yeah, March you can still get a little chill in March, but certainly there's probably more you know, 40s and 50s than there are 30s and 10s in terms of um, the temperature, at least here in the Midwest, in the Chicago area. We've had a a relatively mild, uh, not even relatively, we've had a mild winter. I don't even think we've had 20 inches of snow up to this point, which is crazy. There are, there are some, some winters when we have close to 90. Uh, we didn't have any snow almost all of December and January. We had some in November, which of course scared everybody and everybody think that, oh, we're gonna we're gonna get hit this year. That's what everybody says. But we're not getting hit with as much snow as we used to. But this year, wow. And even the temperatures have not been um crazy cold. There was a little br- but about a week or so here in the Chicago area where things were pretty cold, you know, even under ten, you know, in the ten and the teens, and that's cold. But for the most part, we've had 30s and 40s and even 50s throughout January and February. Very, very unseasonable, but very welcome. And and I was out of the country and in the Middle East for about 14 days. I missed all that Arctic cold. So this has really been, I don't even know if we have, I mean, this is, you know, if I, we can make it through, you know, the next five weeks with with temperatures in the in the 30s and 40s and 50s and then as you get to the end of march sometimes it gets to be 60 well my gosh then i will not even remember the winter of 2022 and 23 wouldn't wouldn't even have won't even have affected me i was in the middle east where it was in the 60s and 70s in late january early february when it was in the teens and even lower in the eights and nines and fives with the temperatures here in chicago and we were in perfect, gorgeous weather. So yeah, this has been a nice, uh, a nice, nice winter. As I record this, we, uh, as I said, we're in this kind of limbo situation. But what we are also in, at least here in the Chicago area, uh, is a, a pretty important election. Uh, I would say the election for mayor is a pretty important election. And in the last week or so, now I don't forget, I, I record this ahead of time. This podcast posts on every Monday, as I always say at the beginning of the podcast. And for regular listeners, you all know that. In fact, I appreciate your, uh, your, um, your routine. There are some people like, if, they, if for some reason there's a technical problem and the podcast doesn't get posted like it, it usually I post it at 8 o'clock central time. I feel that's a good time for people um, getting up uh, or, you know, when you get up in the morning, maybe you listen to it first thing or at least it's there when you do get up or you start your day. So I figured 8 o'clock is a good time to have it posted, 8 o'clock central. Um, but sometimes there's a technical difficulty. Not very often, but it's happened. And sometimes it doesn't get posted till a day later or several hours later, at least. And I get emails from people. Hey, where's the podcast? Where's the podcast? So I appreciate your devotion and um, your um, your routine and you, you being up to date on things. I, I really sometimes I'm not even aware it's not posted yet. And I get an email from somebody. So please 
I appreciate your diligence. That's great. You're even keeping me on my toes. So thank you very much for that, and I appreciate that loyalty. Um, but so, you know, I do record this. So as I speak right now, uh, things may have happened in the few days that transpire between when I record this and when it is posted. Um, so let me just say that as I speak now, um, President Jimmy Carter um, is in hospice. It was revealed a few days ago that uh, at 98 years old, apparently his uh, his health is failing and um, it's in a serious decline. And rather than being kept alive by artificial means, uh, the president and his family have decided to forego that and to put him in hospice care, which uh, is basically allowing the body to slowly uh, find its end without any artificial means. And uh, the patients are usually kept very comfortable, not only physically, but mentally with with different kind of drugs to if they're in pain and things like that to make the um, the transition um, as peaceful and as pain-free as possible. And um, I, I know firsthand about hospice. Both my parents uh, were in hospice care uh, at the end of their lives, and I must say that they both um, were able to pass on uh, in a very... Uh, you know, peaceful, and um, I would hope content way. They weren't in pain; they were comfortable. I mean, it's you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, they they were they were still uh, cognizant. They're still aware, for the most part. Um, so I hope they they it was hard for them to communicate at the end but um but i trust that they they seemed p- at peace and and comfortable and so that certainly uh is a an option if you get into that situation for a loved one or even yourself um and obviously this is a personal decision but um but so president carter as i record this has not passed now perhaps you know i don't know how serious his condition was or is uh, he may, uh, you know, continue in hospice for a while. There's no, there's no guarantees. It's just that when you're put into hospice, any extraordinary means are not used. But the body is resilient, and many times people are in hospice, and they make a full recovery, and they go on. Um, and sometimes not. Uh, my dad was put into hospice, and um, the doctors said, "Well, we'll see. We'll, you know, we, we we can do this now, and in a couple of months, if it seems like he's able to, uh, you know, to to rally back, then we won't need that hospice care." So they 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 certainly were were willing to do it at the time, as he was going through some difficulties, but also they expected him to pull through that. And much to their surprise, within two or three days after being in hospice, he passed away. They were shocked. Um, I do remember seeing him one of the days before that, the, 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 the night before he passed away. 
and uh, he, we were we were in the room, me and my mom and my uh, my wife, and um, we were talking with him, and it was hard for him to communicate. Um, but I was sitting next to him, and we were going to leave, and he grabbed my arm, very strong. Even in his weakest point, he was he was a strong guy, and he grabbed my arm. And uh, I looked at him, and uh, I said, uh, don't you want us to go? We had been there for a couple hours, you know. But, and he grabbed my arm, and he held it. And so I said, you don't, don't you want us to go? We can stay. And, and then he it was almost like, yeah, stay. It almost as if he knew. Like he wanted to spend a little more time because it may be the last time we saw him. And indeed, it was the last time that he saw us. We saw we were called to the hospital um uh then and uh he was sleeping it was the middle of the night his blood pressure had gone down and they were feared that it was they said you should probably come in so he came in around midnight and he was sleeping very soundly so we didn't want to wake him up um and everything you know his vitals were were low but still okay steady and so they said well we thought maybe this you know but he seems to be once again the body you know, the human body, you don't know how resilient it can be. And so we left. And then the 15, 20 minutes it took us to get home, uh, within five minutes after we got home, the phone rang. And it was the hospital. And indeed, he uh, he had just passed away. So we, we did get a chance to, to see him and spend time with him. And as I said, it was very interesting. He did grab me. So you never know. Um, my mom was the same way. My mom was expected uh, to go quicker. It was just the opposite. My dad was expected to last in hospice a little longer. My mom, uh, because of her complications, was in hospice, and they expected her to maybe go in a couple of days, and she stuck around for two more weeks. Two more weeks. The, the doctors were would keep coming in to check her vitals, and they say, well, she's still hanging in there. It's difficult for her to communicate, too. She had a major stroke, and she lost uh, feeling on the uh, on one side of her body and she really she couldn't talk she couldn't swallow it was it was sad at the end uh, but she was still cognizant uh she was still awake but um but her body was just you know was falling apart it was it was just it was slowly declining and but she hung on for two weeks and even after she was pronounced dead by the doctors I was looking at her, and I noticed her chest moving again. And I said, wait, she's breathing. And the doctors were looking at me like I was nuts. You know, I mean, you you know, you don't want somebody you love to be gone, right? So they figured, oh, you know, and, or maybe this was some, you know, reactive, uh, you know, muscle reaction. And it wasn't. And she... After she was pronounced dead, she started to breathe again for another 20 minutes. And the doctors, you know, kept checking her heart and like, yeah, the heart is beating again. <laughs> so I always said, she's, she's going she's gonna to go out when she wants to go out, not when you said. <laughs> so she, she stayed, as, uh, she fought as, as much as she could. So the Carters have decided to do that. Um, as I said, as, as, I, as, I speak, as I speak now, um, he has not passed away. But in the time being, in the next 
three or four days, perhaps he will. Doesn't really change the focus or the the topic of what I want to talk about here, but but I will be talking about Jimmy Carter because this is his situation sparked this m- m- the topic of what I wanted to talk about in conjunction with the fact that uh, this week, in fact, this podcast posts on Monday, the next day, February twenty eighth, uh, is a mayoral, mayoral election here in Chicago, and so. The Carter situation and this mayoral election uh, did seem to have some interesting um, similarities that I wanted to point out. If you listen to the podcast with any regularity, you know that I don't get overtly political and I try to be uh, as apolitical as possible, try to show both sides of an issue from both sides of a political perspective, regardless of what your party or um, political leanings may be. Uh, I try to, to be neutral and give both sides and, and, and try to understand both sides, which I think we really need today in a divided country as we are. And so uh, even in the topics I talk about today, you'll find that I am not favoring one side or the other. It's almost even um, in terms of some of the uh, the uh, examples that I will pick, talk about here. But it was interesting about Jimmy Carter and his presidency and the mayoral campaign here in Chicago is that both Jimmy Carter, when he ran for president in 1976, and Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Lori Lightfoot of Chicago, when she was elected uh, almost four years ago now, after Rahm Emanuel decided not to run, he got into a pretty big scandal about a um, a young black man that was um, was shot by police, and the video was hidden for a while, uh, was not uncovered. And uh, it looked it was a very big black stain on the mayor and on the Chicago Police Department at the time. And it really hurt his and and rightfully so it hurt his his um, support in the black community. And he didn't have that much support from the white community either and and the Latino and and around the, the city. But certainly the black community was up in arms because it was a black kid that was shot by the Chicago police. And so uh, he just decided that uh, after two terms that he was not going to run again uh, because he didn't have the support. And he, of course, succeeded Mayor Richard uh, Daly, who was in power for about 20 years. And so when Lori Lightfoot ran, there was no heir apparent. And there were several candidates, many of them with impressive or long-time government experience and resumes. Lori Lightfoot did not have that. Lori Lightfoot was a, a successful attorney. She had done some work with the police board, I believe, but she had never been, she never governed. And what we find here 
so many times in American politics is when there is a sense of government corruption and cover-up and cronyism and nepotism and clout and and just this kind of old boys or old group network. And when things go bad because of it, voters usually rebel, they clean house, and they usually go for a candidate who they may like personally, but does not have extensive experience in either governing or in the office that they are running for at that level. And they are considered an outsider. And I think voters feel like, you know what, there's, you know, the, the last several years of whatever it is, whether it's a city or a state or, uh, you know, a, 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 the presidential administration, oh, there's, there's been too much corruption, there's been too much ineptness, and we need, and there's too much cronyism and all this, and we need someone from the outside to shake things up. And that sounds, and it's usually a strong personality, the person has a, has a, has a, has a, has a strong personality or at least an endearing personality, and they have this other aspect of being an outsider, and they play that outsider up. And that appeals to so many people who are not in the in crowd or not in the clout, clout, clout crowd. So it's a powerful message, and it's a, it's a powerful outreach. And many times the outsider does win. Jimmy Carter was a definite outsider, uh, no question. He had really no Washington political experience or resume. He was a one-term governor of Georgia and a peanut farmer. But don't forget, in 1976, he was running against Gerald Ford, who was the former vice president under Richard Nixon, who had pardoned Richard Nixon when he became president after Nixon resigned. And the country had had, at that point, because Ford finished Nixon's second term, which was still a couple of years to go. Nixon was first elected in 1968. So we had eight years of Republican rule in the White House from 68 to 76. And in that time, we had the Vietnam War still going on. We had Watergate. We had Nixon resigning. We had Gerald Ford pardoning Nixon. And then we had Gerald Ford's two years filling out the final two years of Nixon's second term filled with um, rampant inflation, very similar to today. And the Cold War was, was, was still bubbling with, with the Soviet Union and communism. Um, and Ford seemed to be, you know, literally stumbled into the job. Chevy Chase made a career out of making fun and make, doing pratfalls on Saturday Night Live, making fun of Gerald Ford's clumsiness. 
Many people think that Gerald Ford was uh, a good president for the brief time he was in. Never elected. Only president never elected, I believe. Um, never elected as president. Well, that's not true, right? No, I shouldn't say that because uh, Lyndon Johnson. No, Lyndon Johnson did win, right? Lyndon Johnson won in 64, yes. Yeah, I think Ford was the only president who was never elected on his own. But um, they just, some people feel like, well, he was the right guy because he had this, he wasn't a very showy or wasn't very, you know, he wasn't a very extroverted kind of strong personality. And that's what the country needed at the time coming from all the turmoil of Watergate and Vietnam and Nixon and all that. And, um, but Ford never really established himself as a strong leader. Plus, you had, as I said, eight years of Republican rule that had a lot of problems. Nixon ran in 68 saying he was going to end the Vietnam War, and it didn't really end until after his he was out of office, even, when we really had the last people out. And then, of course, Watergate and, and that whole fiasco uh, and his resignation. So the American people were frustrated with all the shenanigans that were going on under the Republican rule for those eight years, as well as the fact that inflation was gripping their pocketbooks. In fact, it was so bad, you know, that Gerald Ford enlisted a advertising agency to, to, to help, you know, inspire the nation. And so it was a, a failed experiment, but it's a nice, interesting little pop culture footnote. So the whole idea was this, this ad campaign was to win. And win stood for whip inflation now to the point where Gerald Ford actually wore a button that said win. And you could get win buttons and wear them and win merchandise in order to they, they were hoping to create some groundswell, some grassroots support uh, to, to raise people's spirits because the, the, you know, the 70s were, up to that point, were a pretty uh, you know, rough time between the scandals and the world order and the, what was going on in the world with Russia and the Soviet Union and communism and that whole Cold War threat as well as the economy at home in Vietnam. There was just, it, was a, it was a real difficult time. In the midst of that, 1976, at the same time, we were, we were celebrating our bicentennial. <laughs> so it was a very kind of odd dynamic. We were, we were not feeling very good about ourselves, and at the same time, we were celebrating the 200th anniversary of our, of our country's founding. And we were, there, was so, uh, there was a lot of patriotism that was... That was being generated and people were feeling it yet they were and they weren't and so here came jimmy carter in uh in to run for president against gerald ford and he was viewed as a total washington outsider and he was very religious he had this nice smile that was his big thing the jimmy carter smile he was very low-key very different in temperament certainly to Richard Nixon and his ego and, and, and his big personality. And Gerald Ford, we didn't, 
didn't really project much of any personality. And as I said before, he was he fell down a few times. He was an athlete in college, but I don't know. He just he never seemed really ready for or equipped for the job, and and it was obvious. And then once this falling thing became such a big deal, Saturday Night Live, as I said, almost every every week, Chevy Chase would 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 pretend he was Gerald Ford and, and do these pratfalls. That didn't help him either. And this win button thing didn't help either. Uh, so Jimmy Carter was viewed as a reactionary candidate, and an outsider without any Washington. You know, Ford had been Ford was on the Warren Commission. Ford had been in the Warren Commission was the commission that was um, that was appointed to to look into the JFK assassination. So Joe Ford has was a political insider. He was around for many many years, and so even though he he wasn't as brash as Richard Nixon, he was still considered and looked at as a, as a Washington insider. Jimmy Carter had no real ties to Washington was uh you know the governor of a, of a, a fairly big state prominent state but you know just one term he was a peanut farmer and there, and, and there was just this, this sense of calm very religious guy seemed like a nice guy and maybe it was a time to try an outsider we had so many insiders in in the in the white house for for decades uh whether it was uh you know going back you know, well, FDR was president for, for four terms, which was unheard of, uh, you know, and that's when they made the, the new law that a president can only have two terms. Um, you know, Harry Truman came in, uh, finished FDR's final term and won his own term. Um, you know, and then you had Eisenhower. A general, you can't get much more in, you know, Washington insider than a general of, of World War II. <laughs> uh, and then we had uh, Kennedy, an insider and a, you know, a, a famous American family. Lyndon Johnson, a longtime senator, political insider. Nixon, uh, vice president of the United States under Eisenhower, a big name, who ran for president against Kennedy, lost, and then came back eight years later and uh, and won. So Jimmy Carter was viewed as this outsider, this, this reactionary candidate. Didn't know much about him, but we were just looking for something different. It wasn't so much as a vote for Jimmy Carter as it was a vote against the Republicans. Okay, they've had their chance. They had eight years and they screwed up between Watergate and Vietnam and inflation. It's time for a change. So it wasn't that Jimmy Carter was such a dynamic personality or a dynamic candidate. It's just that he was not Republican. When Lori Lightfoot ran for mayor, she ran as a political outsider. She was an attorney. She had a, some governmental experience working, as I said before, with the police board, but nothing in a governing standpoint. She was running against a lot of people, uh, Tony Preckwinkle, who was the 
the longtime head of the Cook County Board, a very powerful position and political and patronage kind of position here, in this, and as well as some other uh, aldermen and, and, and some high-ranking um, government officials like Paul Vallis, who had been the, the school superintendent here in Chicago. So Larry, Larry Lightfoot was a relative, was, was an unknown initially, um, and that was her calling card. Because after 20 years of a clout-heavy and uh, basically inept mayoral tenure of Richard Daly, Richard M. Daly, and then which seemed to be a, a very, uh, you know, kind of, it, it, Rahm Emanuel's mayoral tenure was, was almost felt like a, like a privilege. It was it was very strange. Richard M. Daly, you know, decided he wasn't going to run after twenty years. Rahm Emanuel was Barack Obama's uh, chief of staff. It was a weird, almost trade. If you remember this, Rahm Emanuel decided to run for Chicago mayor, and Richard Daly's brother became the new chief of staff under Obama. It smacked of political cronyism. There was a question of whether uh, Rahm Emanuel even had the residency requirement as a citizen of Chicago to run, and that went to court. It, it seemed, it seemed like a real political cronyism, cronyism clout-filled transition. But he won because he was still in the afterglow of the Barack Obama presidency since he was in his campaign and his chief of staff. And, and, and Chicago loved having Barack Obama as the president. Even though he's not from Chicago, he did live here and claim Chicago as his home, which as soon as he didn't become president, he hardly ever came back here again. But Chicago was a good base. And we could debate that for a long time, too. Um, but anyway, Rahm Emanuel's... Uh, mayoral uh, tenure was not uh, did not really stick out at all and it just felt like it was handed to him like it was a privilege like he was like he should have it he didn't really have any ideas as to what he wanted to do and why he wanted to be mayor but he just thought it would look like it would be cool to be mayor and so he got to be mayor but when he got in there uh, he didn't really do much so, but once again, you had 20, you know, 20 some years of, of Mayor Daley and then this kind of very politically charged and, and influenced cronyism of Rahm Emanuel. And so here comes Lori Lightfoot without any kind of governmental experience and people were just pretty sick and tired of the Rahm Emanuel and the, the Richard J. Daley kind of insider world of politics. And so they elected a outsider, an unknown, to give her a chance. Jane Byrne, first female mayor of Chicago. Another shocking win, a reactionary vote, an outsider. 
Mayor Daley, the first Mayor Daley, Mayor Richard J. Daley, passed away suddenly without an heir apparent. Uh, a very low-key Chicago machine politician who nobody really knew of, but who the powers that be felt that they could put, put him and be a placeholder and, and push him around was a guy by the name of Michael Belandic, very low-key guy with ties to the machine who I think the real power brokers felt that they could push around and, and he would rubber stamp whatever they wanted. Many of the daily cronies. And it was working for a while, to be honest. But one thing that they didn't count on was a horrendous snowstorm. I was just talking earlier in the podcast about how we haven't had much snow this year. Uh, at, at this point, uh, as I speak to you, under 20 inches, maybe even under 15 inches of snow for the whole winter. That winter, we got over 100. We had a huge blizzard. The blizzard of 78, which in 79, uh, which basically spelled the end of Michael Belanda. The city was buried in snow for a week. It, it, the, the governmental, the Chicago um, apparatus of, of plowing the streets, not only the side streets, but the main streets. The city was basically closed down for a week it, it looked like a, a it looked like a it looked like a, a snow it looked like just like it was a snow earthquake i mean cars were buried main streets the the, the side streets were buried for for over a week uh, it just was total ineptness uh by the city government to clear these streets they were not ready for this kind of a snow and if, if and for years, the, 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 the slogan of Chicago under Richard J. Daley was the city that works. Everybody knew how corrupt the Daley administration was and how crone, and it was full of nepotism and cronyism and clout. Everybody knew that. You know, it was, there was a Chicago machine. Richard J. Daley uh, had a huge, uh, uh, you know, army of, of, of patronage workers who were loyal to him and political uh, and business people that were loyal to him. They were doling out contracts and jobs. And everybody knew the graft and the clout that was going on in the city. It gave daily great, obviously, local, regional, and even national power because he could deliver votes for, for a candidate. Many people believe that Richard J. Daley is basically the reason why John F. Kennedy won. Because there was allegations that in, in Illinois and in Cook County, there were votes being, being stolen. John F. Kennedy only won the presidential election by 5,000 votes. You understand what that means? You know, 200 million people in the country, and he won by 5,000 votes. There's a, good, there's a good chance that many of those 5,000 suddenly popped up somewhere in the Chicago area. There was allegations of dead people even having voted so daily had great power not only in the city not only in the state of illinois but nationally and they knew everyone knew the how the city worked it was a city of insiders and if you were in the inside you did well and if you're outside you were not happy about it but the reason why daily got elected year after year for 
20 years was that amidst all the corruption that was not even underground, everybody knew the game. The average person knew the corruption that was going on. But at the very least, what Richard Jaley, which Richard J. Daly did was make sure that people's garbage was picked up, that their streets were plowed, and that their streets were cleaned. Their basic services in their daily lives were taken care of. All this other political stuff, who was getting uh, jobs, who was getting a permit to build a building, who was getting a... Uh, uh, permits and this to build or get that all this corruption that was going around the average person really knew about but didn't really care because at least their garbage got picked up their snow got plowed and their streets were cleaned and that's all that they really cared about and daily delivered that but Belandic was was did not and granted it was a it was a it was a horrendous and surprising uh and and just uh you know snowstorm just a blizzard that dumped not only a ton of snow one day but in a couple of days there was no way i mean it, you know in in retrospect i don't know how how much it was really Belandic's fault because the trucks and the plows really didn't get a chance to get the first wave of snow out before the second big dumping came but the the visual and the optics is that this city isn't working. We put up with the corruption because at least our services were always there. We had clean, our garbage got picked up, the, the snow was plowed, and the streets were clean. But now we're, we are not going to take corruption and our basic services not being delivered. So here was Jane Byrne, a middle-range political crony. She had been in the Daly administration, but of not of any prominence. But she had the guts to run against Michael Bolandic, who certainly had the power of the what was left of the Daly machine. But she cast herself as an outsider, even though she was hired by Richard J. Daly and worked in the Chicago government, she still was able to fashion herself as an outsider. And she attacked Bolandic for the snow and the ineptness. And that's what basically beat Michael Bolandic was his inability to dig the city out of a, of a, of a surprise snowstorm just weeks before the election. So this was still fresh on people's minds, too. This happened in, De- you know, in December and January, and once again, the, uh, the, uh, the election was in February. So this was, the, the snow still hadn't even melted yet. So it was, people remembered how they couldn't get out of their houses for a week, and they were worried about getting food, and, and schools were closed, and people couldn't go to work. It was... And, and, and even the, the, the side streets were almost two weeks later. The, the, the city was a mess because it, got, it, it stayed cold. The snow was not even really melting. So there was this, a couple of big dumps of snow within a couple of days, three or four days, constant snow, and then it's, it stayed cold. So not only did the snow, was it difficult to, to get a jump on it, to get it plowed, but then it, it, it stayed around. So it was a constant reminder to voters. So Jane Byrne exploited that, ran as an outsider, ran as a reaction, reaction candidate to the, to the Chicago 
uh, political machine as well as the ineptness to get rid of the snow. Presented herself as an outsider and won. She wasn't the machine. Jimmy Carter wasn't a Washington insider. Lori Lightfoot wasn't a political insider. We only have to look at the last two presidential elections on both sides of the aisle, Republican side and Democratic side. Donald Trump was not given any, any chance to win. His candidacy was viewed as a joke. Hillary Clinton was a former first lady, a former New York senator, and a former secretary of state. She had a a very impressive resume. She was a political insider. Obviously, she was, you can't get much more inside. She lived in the White House for eight years. And she had run for president one time before and lost, and now she was anointed. This was her time. And Donald Trump was a blowhard, arrogant, New York real estate agent, uh, real estate developer, not agent, developer with a huge personality, controversial, uh, loved to show off. Uh, People in New York either loved him or hated him. And his, he never governed anything. He just ran a business. And once again, it became a question of insider versus outsider. Reaction. The Democrats had the eight years of the Obama administration. If you elect Hillary and she wins, that's at least 12 years. And what if she wins election again? The Democrats would have been in for four terms, 16 years There would have been 16 years of Democratic uh, presidential governing. And people didn't like Hillary for whatever reason. Personally, they didn't like her pantsuits. They didn't like her, the way her voice raised when she, when she talked loud or energetically, she was a very polarizing candidate and as polarizing as Trump was, he shocked everybody. He was a reactionary character. He, he talked about the swamp. He talked about changing things and shaking things up and running the country like a business. I'm an outsider. I'm an outsider. He was a reactionary candidate, a rebellion candidate against eight years of Democratic rule. The Obama presidency was 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 a crapshoot. Some people loved him. Some people hated him. Very divided. That's really where the divisions really started, if you really want. Well, the divisions even went out before that. But the divisions we have today were certainly beginning to get more firm during the Obama administration. People either loved Barack Obama and still do or hated him and still do. And so because Hillary Clinton was his secretary of state, and was a political insider, was the first lady of the United States, was a senator from New York. She was viewed as a Washington insider. And rightly so. 
And Donald Trump, for all his, for all his narcissism and ego-driven uh, career and personality, when it came to government, he was viewed as an outsider, never held any governmental position, never was, was an alderman, never was on anything. He went, the first election he ever ran was for president. The best, the biggest job in the world, and he won it. He was a reactionary character, candidate. Joe Biden. Can't get much more politically insider than him. Been a senator for 45 years and vice president under Barack Obama. He wasn't an enthusiastic Democratic character. The Democratic Party was not enthusiastic about Joe Biden. If he hadn't won the South, I can't remember, was the South or North Carolina uh, primary, one of the Carolinas, <laughs> um, he was going to be dropping out. Kamala Harris had dropped, was the first person to drop out. And Joe Biden had come in second and was not winning primaries until the Carolina primary. And if he hadn't won that, that one springboarded him. Because the Democrats had such a weak bench of 19 uh, candidates that none of them caught fire in any real way. And the Democrats were so hell-bent on beating Donald Trump that they decided to take Joe Biden, who was one primary away from getting kicked out of the, of the, of the, of the, elect, uh, the campaign himself. He wasn't a consensus candidate for the Democrats. He was a compromise candidate. At 78, he was his main qualification. He had run for president several times before in the past, never made it out of the first three or four primaries, and once again wasn't going to either until it was so obvious that the Democrats had nobody who could win nationally against Donald Trump, that they decided to go at least for somebody who had some political gravitas. He was vice president. He was a 40-year senator. So at least you couldn't deny that. But he was not the Democrat, the real Democratic Party's choice. But the Democratic Party at the time was going for so far left people that they knew that the middle America was, we're, we're not going to vote for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker or Pete Buttigieg. They, it was not going to happen. So they went with the safe choice. Joe Biden was a compromise candidate, not a consensus candidate. And that's why there's so much question going on now. He was a reaction to Donald Trump. Joe Biden's greatest asset was that he wasn't Donald Trump. Lori Lightfoot's greatest asset was that she wasn't a political insider. She wasn't a part of the daily Rahm Emanuel machine. Jimmy Carter's greatest asset is that he was an outsider, that he wasn't a part of the Republican Party and in the entire Nixon-Ford mess of Watergate. Donald Trump was a reactional reaction outsider candidate that he wasn't a part of the the swamp as he called it and the political insiders of Hillary Clinton and all the inept 
you know, the inactivity of Washington. He was going to shake things up. All four of those people, and I can name many more, but these are just recent people, were reactionary candidates. They didn't really have a constituency. They really didn't have a, a groundswell of support for them. People voted for them. Because they were voting, they didn't, well, they voted for them, obviously, but they were more voting against their opponents than for them. They were voting against their opponents or against what their opponents seemed to represent rather than voting for themselves. So even if they won by a big margin, and most of them did not, there was no mandate there. there they didn't have a groundswell of of enthusiastic support for them because basically they were put up as anti-candidates. They weren't the other person. And the other person was viewed as inept or bad or, or a political insider. Jane Byrne didn't really have a constituency, but people hated Belandic for getting them stuck in the snow, so they voted for Jane Byrne. Every one of those people. When, so when they got into office, it was difficult for them to govern. A, because they didn't have the experience of governing. And there is a process. There is a process to government. And most people from the outside think that they can come in and just shake things up. Everybody wants to be a disruptor these days. You know, that's the big thing in the business world. Are you a disruptor? You're disrupting. You know, our our philosophy or our product is going to disrupt the 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 market segment. We're going to change things. It, you know, it's been done the same way, and we are going to disrupt it. That's what everybody wants to be a disruptor, and even political. A lot of people want to be disruptors. We're going to change. We're going to clean house. We're going to run things more efficiently. And from the outside, it looks like you can do that. And when you get in there, you realize for better or for worse, government is a huge slogging bureaucracy. And there's a reason that things don't get done quickly. Whether it's right or wrong, whether we have an overabundance of checks and balances, whether it's inept people that are in, 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 in office, whether it's bureaucracies filled with people who are more worried about keeping their job than doing their job, whatever the reason is, this is the government that we have. And many outsiders, many people have come and gotten elected because that message does appeal of cleaning house, cleaning the swamp, of, of an outsider coming in and, and bringing a new outlook and a, and a, and a freshness. And when they get in, they, they quickly understand what a slog it is. That's why so many governors and presidents and mayors, after four years, they age so much. And especially after eight years, you see the way they, they, they age. There's, there's a lot of frustration in those high-level jobs because I think they, from the outside looking in, it looks like, oh, I'm going to get in there and I've, I've, I'm, I'm very competent. I've been successful in whatever 
uh, jobs I've had in the in the public sector, the private sector, and I'm going to be able to bring that efficiency in my managerial experience into the government and make it work for people and 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 cut out all this this waste. And it's the same message. And when they get in, they find that they it, that it's 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 so packed with obstacles and there is a way you have to know the game and you have to know the players that's the way whether it's right or wrong that's the way the game is stacked and and if you don't have the support of those people who are pulling those strings within the government it doesn't matter how popular you are with the people those power brokers within the government who do pull the strings, who do command power and caucuses and votes and committees will make your life impossible. If you don't have their support or if you're from the opposite party, especially in today's world. And every person that I have just mentioned only made it to one term. Now, we'll find out about Joe Biden. And that's a crapshoot, even if he's going to win. Who knows if he'll be alive? <laughs> Jimmy Carter, one term. He was a Mike, he was, he was, he was, he was, I don't know if he, if he's, as I said, I don't know if he will have passed away by the time this, is, this has come on. There's no question, his, he was a better post-president but he was a failed president. And if you weren't alive or if you don't remember, you're going to hear a lot of people try to push up, you know, because he was, he was such a nice guy. And he did do a lot after his presidency. He, start, he built homes for the, you know, the uh, houses for humanity. And he built homes for people. And he went to foreign countries to oversee their elections. He was a humanitarian. He was a great humanitarian. He was a very religious guy. He taught Sunday school for years after he was president. There's no doubt that after he was president, he was active and involved. And he was a great humanitarian. No question about that. But don't let people spin you, if you're, especially if you're young, if you're too young to know, that he was a good president. He was not a good president. He was a failed president. We had horrible inflation. We had horrible um, unemployment. Interest rates were at 15%. People couldn't buy houses. The Iranians took people hostage for, for, for three years, right? 400 days, a year and a half or so. We were held hostage by Iran. We tried to... Uh, under Carter, they tried to rescue the people, and the the, hel- the American helicopters crashed on their way. It was so failed. His presidency was failed. He was a very nice guy. He was a great humanitarian, no question. But don't let people tell you that he was a great president. He was not. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you the truth. He was a micromanager. He was more worried about who was playing tennis. This is no lie. He was more worried about who was playing tennis at the at the White House tennis court. He wasn't equipped. He wasn't experienced enough. He didn't have the connections and the knowledge to, to be president. But 
he gave an uh, he he was he was not Republican, and he was not an insider, and that's why he got elected. But he was not a good president. He was not an effective president. Those his four years were really a down down time for this country. And I'm not trying to say anything. I'm not trying to criticize him because I'm telling you, after he became president. He just didn't go away. He was very active in public life, and he was a great humanitarian. He did many great things. He led a great, great life. There's no question about that. Admirable. A very great man. But a bad president. So when you're hearing whether he's passed away and the tributes have started, or when he does pass away, when they're recapping his presidency listen closely to see what they say and to see how they're spinning it because they want to be nice because he was a great guy and he lived a long life longest living president and he was a great humanitarian but he was not an effective or not a good president that's just reality so carter reactionary outsider candidate one term jane byrne four years and out Four years and out, replaced by Harold Washington. Reactionary candidate. Outsider. Ran against the snow and won. For one term, gone. Was not an effective governor or or mayor at all. Lori Lightfoot. We'll see. Tomorrow, we'll see. As it stands right now, there's a good chance in Chicago, the way the rules have been set up now, if you don't get 50% of the vote in the election, then there is a runoff between the the top two candidates. There is a good chance that Lori Lightfoot will not even be in the top two. There's a really good chance of that. The incumbent mayor, she is an outsider, but she has had a very tumultuous um, tenure. The crime in Chicago is out of control here. She has been very aggressive in the way she handles people. Um, but that the crime is really the biggest problem here in Chicago. It has escalated since she took over. And she really doesn't seem to have any kind of plan. Her police chief just comes on every day and says the same thing about how terrible this this latest gang-related murder is, and this has to stop. And that's he's been saying that for three years. So it'll be very interesting to see tomorrow if she even makes the runoff. Because if not, once again, she'll be a lame duck outsider, and she she won't even have a chance to to win another term. She'll be gone in this first round. There's a good chance that Paul Vallis and Chewy Garcia or even Brandon Johnson may get the second slot above her. That's going to be the question. I don't think she's going to win. She's not going to have the most votes. Right now, it seems like Paul Vallis here in Chicago, who who ran before and was a police or as a was a school superintendent here, looks like he's going to get the most votes. So the key spot is the number two spot. And he's not going to get 50%. There's going to be a runoff in April. That's almost a guarantee. But the question is, who's the runoff going to be? Is it going to be Vallis and Lightfoot? 
Vallis and Garcia or Vallis and Johnson? I think those are the four people. Those are the four names you have to really worry about. But the sitting incumbent may not even get the runoff. That's a huge message that you did not do a good job. The people are not happy with you. And sadly, at the very end of this campaign, Lori Lightfoot really stooped down to a low, low level and played racial politics and played a racial card. Just a week before the election, really put her foot in her mouth, literally. Speaking to an African-American audience on a Sunday, I believe at a church, she basically said that if you don't vote for her, if you live on the predominantly African-American south side and west side of this city, if you're an African, she basically was saying, if you're an African-American on the south side or the west side of Chicago and you don't vote for me, then you shouldn't vote. That is the most cynical view of anyone who is in public office in this, in this country. We are a democratic-based society. We all we are in the midst of, of of and Lori Lightfoot complaining one of the biggest proponents of of making it of taking all the biases and the discrimination away and opening up the voting process so it's easier for all people to vote, especially people of color. For her to have played the race card, you can't have it both ways. I've said this many times. Hypocrisy is the worst thing that can happen to you, and she is a hypocrite. She's been screaming about voter rights and how Republicans and, and have been trying to to suppress voter rights. And she basically told African-Americans in the city of Chicago not to vote. If you don't like me, fine, but don't vote then. To tell anyone not to vote is un-American, is cynical, and is hypocritic if you are in if you are a, a, a an office holder in the government of the United States. So for that, and then she's tried to step back and say, "Oh, I misspoke. I misspoke." She didn't misspoke. She didn't misspeak. She knew exactly where she was, and she knew exactly what she was saying, and she knew exactly what she was saying to who she was saying it to. And she probably hoped that it wouldn't leak out, which was a really stupid thing, because today with people's phones, anything you say in public gets taken and put out there. So shame on you, Lori Lightfoot. For that alone, she's probably, if she doesn't win, I guarantee you that will be one of the main aspects and issues that people will point to as to why she didn't even get into the runoff, because of this foolish and cynical and anti-democratic and anti-voting statement that she made. She really went down. To, she was so desperate. That's how you know how desperate she was to play the race card and to actually tell people not to vote. Wow. So she could be a one-term or an out too. Donald Trump, one-term and out. Reactionary candidate. Some people love them. Many people hated him. One term and out. Reaction candidate. As I said, we'll see now with Joe Biden. There are some people in the Democratic Party that don't want Joe Biden to run because of his age and other issues. 
Will he be a one-term president? I just gave you, what, one, two, three, four, five reactionary outsider candidates who all rose to prominent positions of president and of mayor of major cities. And they all came in as an outsider, going to change the government, going to clean it up, going to get rid of all the corruption, going to make it work efficiently. I'm an outsider. I don't have any ties to political cronyism. I'm going to do and one term and out. I'm not saying that you should that the only people who should that should be in government are political cronies because I I don't like that either. But all I'm saying is it's interesting how the outsiders there has to be a mix, I guess, is my thing. You, you, I think it's good to have some kind of experience in government, to know how it works, to have some supporters, to have some contacts, but to not be so entrenched that they run you. So that's what I think in this day and age might be the best candidates. That's why you see a lot of people today Running, you will see a lot of former governors running for president in 2024. Why? Because they have governmental experience. They have experience running a state. So they know the way government works. They know the importance of the, they know the way the mechanism works. They deal with a budget. They deal with supplying services. They are the, the head governmental the head of a of a state and many times several million people not like a senator who is just filled with lobbyists and and committees and is in the washington swirl so the governor is as close as you can get to a political insider and outsider that might be at least for right now that might be the most appealing kind of candidate in terms of a resume someone who is a politi- who has political experience but not stuck in the washington political insider world so kind of an insider kind of an outsider so i guarantee you that's what you're going to see in terms of people running especially on the republican side we've already got one nikki haley former governor and you may see some either current or former who's on the political who's on the republican side who are the other people that are thinking they're going to run ron DeSantis, governor of florida john sununu governor of new hampshire governors at least right now they might be the most attractive or appealing Political insider and political outsider. But when I saw Jimmy Carter with his health situation, it reminded me of, of, of Carter and, and his presidency and how he was viewed as a non... He was, a, he was not a Republican. He was not... He was... A, he, more people voted against... Ford and against the Republicans 
than voted they than why they voted for Carter. When you are a reactionary candidate, when people vote not for you but against your opponent, you really didn't win the election. The other person lost it. You really don't have much support. It's just that you weren't the other guy. You were lucky enough to go up against somebody who wasn't liked. And that's why they voted for you. Now, some people do succeed at this. I'm not saying it's impossible. But I'm, I'm, I'm showing you at least four or five different and pretty prominent examples, both from the past as well as what we're in right today, of political outsiders, of, of compromised candidates, of people who won not because of who they are, but who they weren't. So as you vote tomorrow, if you are voting tomorrow, think about that when you're voting. Think about, are you voting for someone or are you voting against someone? Whoever you vote for, Vote for someone that you like, that you believe in, whether they have a chance to win or not. Because at least you can go home after you voted feeling good about yourself, that you voted for someone that you really believed in. Don't worry about picking the winner. Many times the winner isn't the best candidate. My view is vote for the person that you feel most connected to that you feel is the best vote for what they have to offer not just who they aren't because history has shown that those political outsiders those that you vote that that win not because of who they are but who they aren't are usually ineffectual one-term presidents one-term mayors, one-term governors, one-term politicians. You're not wasting your vote by voting for someone who lost. You're, you're, you're respecting your vote of voting for someone that you feel strongly about. And maybe they don't win the first time, but maybe they have enough Support that they could run again. And maybe they'll be in a more favorable situation. And when you vote for them that second time, they can win. So think about not only who you're voting for, but why you're voting for. But most importantly, whether it's in the election tomorrow in Chicago whether it's in the 2024 presidential election or whichever election's coming up. Unlike Lori Lightfoot, I would say, get out there and vote. It's a privilege that many people around the world do not have. Cherish your right to vote and use your right to vote. Whoever that may be, whatever your political ideology, whatever party you follow, 
vote. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. And don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 353. I'm Jim Toronto, and here on Business, I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, from the end of the web to your screen. Vote.